you have your Bibles this morning, I want to encourage you to be turning to Ephesians chapter 4. This morning, our study will confine us to one verse. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. You're sitting in the waiting room, reading a terribly outdated magazine when the door opens. Mr. Jones, the nurse calls. You stand and follow her, relieved to be out of that germ-infested waiting room, and you're led to a small evaluation room where you there wait for the doctor, staring at creepy posters of human anatomy. As the doctor walks in with your chart, you're excited to get the show on the road. Doc pulls out his stethoscope, and he listens to your heart and your lungs. He uses his otoscope and looks into your ears, and he puts that not-so-tasty stick in your mouth and says, Say, ah, at which point he looks at you oddly and says, hmm. He checks your blood pressure, presses on your abdomen to look for any abnormalities, Back to your chart, he looks as he sketches his findings down. His conclusion, you're as healthy as an ox. Your vital signs point to the fact that your body's growing and functioning just as it should. Our text for this morning and for next week, Paul will give us some of the vital signs for a healthy, growing, maturing body. That being the body of Christ. This morning we'll learn that a healthy body is two things. One, progressively growing in spiritual maturity as well as progressively growing in a theological stability. Those are the two key words, the two theme words this morning. Spiritual maturity and theological stability. Maturity and stability. Those things are in place. Those things are evident in a healthy body. Spiritual maturity theological stability. With that being said, let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. Let me have you stand. If you have the ability. Paul pins the following words. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. You may be seated. The so that here in our text obviously connects us back to last week's text. We learned that God has uniquely gifted every individual to play a unique function, to serve in a unique way within the body of Christ. God has given every believer at least one gift. Many members of the body are, are gifted, multiple spiritual gifts. And we also said last week that God has given particular gifts to the church in ministers that he has given to the church. We talked about the first generation of ministers, those who laid the foundation. Those are the apostles and the prophets. Those ministers have expired But there is now a generation, a second generation of ministers who are equipping the body of Christ for service. If you were here last week, you remember that those are the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. Those are God-given gifts to the body of Christ to equip her for service, namely to himself, but also to each other. We concluded last week, Paul concluded with, with three positive marks of spiritual maturity. 
If you have your Bible there, look back at verse 13 for just a moment. One verse prior to our text for this morning, Paul concluded with three positive marks of spiritual maturity. At number one, he talks about a unity of faith. He says, until we attain the unity of faith. That's one positive marker, so to speak. One vital sign of a healthy, growing body is that we have a unity of faith. The second marker that he gave us is that we would have a deeper knowledge of Christ. He says, and the knowledge of the Son of God. That we would be growing individually and collectively in a deeper knowledge of Christ. And then third and last, he speaks of a Christ-likeness. He speaks about uh, the fact that we are to be growing to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Three markers, he gives us, three positive markers, three positive signs of a healthy, maturing, growing body of Christ. And the ultimate goal or the ultimate final destination of every Christian is the fullness of Christ that Paul speaks about there in verse 13. That is complete maturity. That's what we are longing for. We're being matured, but we long for the day when we are found in him completely mature. And we will be that at Christ's return. But friends, we aren't there yet. And so in verse 14, our text for this morning, Paul sets forth to the more immediate objective And that's that we grow out of our spiritual childhood and that we grow into the mature man that Paul speaks of. In other words, that we will be progressing towards what we will one day soon be. Theologically, we call that progressive sanctification. That begins at the moment of your conversion and it exists all the way until you breathe life's final breath or the Lord Jesus steps back into this world and returns and captures up his bride. From the day of your conversion until the day you breathe life's final breath, we're being progressively sanctified. We're growing, we're maturing. Just like a physical child grows, so we grow spiritually. Paul talks about that here. And he talks about uh, the whole idea of progressive sanctification in many places throughout the New Testament. Uh, One probably being very familiar to you would be uh, Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. Progressive sanctification. That, That we are not the completed work yet. Being confident in this that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God's desire for the body of Christ is that she would become full-grown and that each of her members might contribute to that maturity by becoming spiritual adults. If you're taking notes this morning, want to draw your attention to point number one on your outline, and that's simply this. A healthy body is progressively growing in spiritual maturity. A healthy body is progressively growing in spiritual maturity. We do that individually as we grow in Christ-likeness, and then we grow in spiritual maturity as a collective body, as each member contributes to that maturity by individually becoming spiritual adults, moving out of childhood and into spiritual adulthood. Notice how tactful Paul is. I love this. Paul is, is incredibly pastoral in the way that he writes. He had a shepherd's heart. He had a pastoral heart. Knowing the temptation and the waywardness of his own heart, he uses the first-person plural pronoun, we, 
to address his readers. In other words, he lumps himself in there. He doesn't say, you need to be growing out of childhood and into spiritual adulthood. He says, we need to be growing out of childhood, including himself. What humility, what a pastoral heart there. Paul himself desires, along with his readers, that is the original intended recipients and audience, as well as us this morning, whom God has preserved his word through the generations and passed it down to us without error, infallible, inerrant. Paul desires too, along with his readers, to stand firm, not to be carried by every wind and wave of teaching, to speak the truth in love. We'll talk more about that next week as we approach verses 15 and 16. And there to grow up in Christ the head. Look at your Bible there in verse 14, though. Paul encourages us not to remain spiritual children. But Paul doesn't use the, uh, what will be the typical or maybe even the expected Greek word, technon, for child here in this verse. Instead, he uses the word napios, which literally means an infant that cannot speak. We're not just talking about a, a child, a, a, a two- or a three-year-old. We're talking about an infant that cannot even speak. That's what Paul says when he says, you, we are to move out of spiritual childhood. We're to move out of that infancy of our faith and into maturity. Paul used the exact same word, napios, to address the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 when he said this. He said, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants. Same word there, infants in Christ. Later he said, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Same word there. Be infants in evil, he says, but in your thinking, be mature. Be infants in evil, but insofar as Christ's likeness is concerned, be mature. In other words, Paul is saying we need to grow up in our faith. We need to grow up. You think about children. Children are easily distracted from the main thing. It doesn't take much to divert a child's attention. They're easily imposed upon. They're, they're, they're very easily impressioned. Paul's exhortation here is that we would no longer be children in knowledge, that we would no longer be weak in the faith, inconsistent in our judgments, easily yielding to every temptation, and readily complying with the fads, the spiritual fads of the day. Rather, he encourages us to grow up. But unfortunately, some Christians are quite content to remain babes in Christ and to never cut their spiritual teeth. I want you just to think about your own self. Think about your walk with Christ. Think about your, your spiritual convictions. Think about your spiritual disciplines. Are, are, you, are you taking personal responsibility for growing up in the faith? Are you taking personal responsibility for growing up in the faith, using the means of grace, so to speak, to grow up in your salvation? We don't want to be that immature Christian that is content to be a babe in Christ. It's the babes in Christ that will become the victims of every charlatan who comes along. But in some respects, Christians are to be like children. Hear what I say here. We're called to exercise a simplicity of trust in Christ. To think about these two young ones who were just baptized. A simplicity of faith. 
I love Christ. I want to serve him. I want to be a good representation to my friends and my family. I want to follow him in obedience. I want to know him. That simplicity of trust in Christ, faith in Christ. We're to be like children in that we are to long for the, the milk of the word. Uh, Peter talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, we like newborn babies should crave pure spiritual milk so that by it we might grow up in our salvation. We're to be docile, gentle, mild, free from ambition. That's prideful ambition. Free from haughtiness. But children times often have other characteristics besides simplicity and docility. Children are oftentimes easily changeable. Credulous, easily influenced by others and quickly led astray. It's in these respects that Paul tells us to grow out of childhood and into spiritual maturity. There are some ways in which we as Christians are to remain like children in that simplicity of trust and faith in Christ. But we are to grow up in our salvation. That we would not be easily influenced negatively by others. That we would not be quickly led astray. But that we would be firm in the faith. Rooted, grounded, established. Uh, You can all think about that that weed in the yard. That its roots go so deep that it's just hard to get it out of the ground. And there's a sense in which we as Christians want to have so deeply... uh, such deep roots that it's hard for us to be pulled out of the ground. That's the imagery when Paul talks about being rooted and grounded or rooted and established in the faith, that we would have deep roots and not easily swayed by the spiritual fads of the days. Paul exhorts the Ephesians to no longer be children, but urges them to put on the characteristics of manhood especially to put on a firmness of biblical conviction which translates into maturity of life. Let me rewind that statement for you. We should be putting on a firmness of biblical conviction which translates into a maturity of life. When we first stepped into Ephesians chapter 4, we talked about doctrine. That word's going to come up again in our text for this morning. The word simply means teaching. And we said that that there are some Christians who, if they didn't say it or verbalize it, might think something like this. Why, Why do we have to be so concerned with doctrinal precision? Why do we have to be concerned with all this high theology? And the reason that we have to be concerned with doctrinal precision and high theology is because what we believe directly translates into how we behave. Those two things are are not separate. They're not mutually exclusive. What you believe influences how you behave. You do what you do. I do what I do because we think what we think. Paul says, but be renewed. How? In your thinking. So that you're not pressed into the mold of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your what? Say the word. Mind. Mind, that theme is pervasive in the New Testament, a renewing of the mind that we might live lives that are honoring and pleasing to Christ. A firmness of biblical conviction translates into a maturity of life. The writer of Hebrews said this, speaking about spiritual babes. He said, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, 
You need someone to teach you again the basic or the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by, and this is the phrase he uses, constant practice. Remember, just a couple minutes ago I asked, what about you? Are, are you taking personal responsibility for growing into mature manhood in your faith. Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us how that happens. He says it happens by constant practice. Our discernment is trained by constant practice that we're able to distinguish what is good from evil. The story was once told of a little boy whose mother put him to bed one night. Johnny crawled under the covers and his mother tucked him into bed before going downstairs herself to read for a while. And about 30 minutes passed before she heard a big thud on the floor. She knew exactly what had happened. Johnny had fallen out of bed again. And so she went upstairs, opened the bedroom door, and there was Johnny sitting in the middle of the floor with a bewildered look on his face. Mom asked Johnny, what happened? He said, Mama, I don't know. I guess I just stayed too close to where I got in. You see, spiritual children, that's the problem, is that they stay too close to where they got in. They never grow. They never move forward in their walk with Christ. They don't take advantage of the means of grace. They're not in in the Bible. They're not studying the word. And so they stay too close to the edge. Those who stay too close to the edge are blown around by every wave of doctrine. They're led astray by every charlatan who steps on the scene and claims to have a new way or a new word. Friends, let's not be like Johnny spiritually. Don't stay too close to where you got in. Grow, advance, move forward, grow up in your salvation. I want to draw your attention to point number two on your outline. This is where we'll spend the majority of our time this morning. And that's simply that a healthy body is progressively growing in theological stability. A healthy body is progressively growing in theological stability. Stability. You see, Paul said in the first part of verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. And then what he sets out to do in the rest of verse 14 is he describes in a negative sense what happens to spiritual children. Look at the back half of verse 14. Paul says that spiritual children, those who are unstable, theologically, are tossed to and fro by the waves. They're carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. You see, Paul gives us two characteristics of children here in verse 14. Number one, their instability. And number two, their liability to be deceived and led astray. Two characteristics of children. They're unstable. And so, because of their instability, they're very likely to be deceived and led astray. You see, the former, that of their instability, is expressed by comparing them to a ship without a rudder, who's tossed to and fro by the waves and driven about by every wind. 
It's the spiritually immature, the children who are in constant danger of falling prey to every new religious fad or novel interpretation of Scripture that comes along. And I'll tell you that there is a novel interpretation of Scripture that comes along with the rising of every day's sun. Having no thorough knowledge of God's Word, Spiritual children are tossed here and there by the waves of popular sentiment. They're carried about by every wave and wind of new doctrine that seems appealing. Because they're not anchored to God's truth, they're subject to every sort of counterfeit. You know how bankers are taught to discern counterfeit money? You've probably heard the illustration before. Bankers aren't aren't taught, at least primarily, to discern counterfeit from the genuine article as it pertains to monetary notes, by handling the phony. They're taught to discern that which is fraudulent by handling over and over and over the real thing, the genuine article, so that when a false article comes through their hand, it feels different, it smells different. They know because they're so accustomed to the real thing. Friends, that needs to be us. We're so accustomed to uh, a genuine biblical interpretation of Scripture, sound doctrine, high theology, that when falsehood comes, we're so quick and easy to discern it. If we're not anchored by a growing knowledge of Christ, which, let me just have you glance back at your Bible again, look at verse 13. Paul writes, until we attain to the unity of faith, that was spiritual growth marker number one, and to the knowledge of the Son of God. If we're not anchored by a growing knowledge of Christ, then you and I are at the mercy of the wind and the waves. Let's talk about the second half of verse 14 here. Paul writes the phrase, tossed to and fro by the waves. You see, while a mature Christian is characterized by a growing measure of groundedness and stability in the Word of God, by contrast, a spiritually immature Christian is tossed to and fro by the waves. The Greek verb that Paul uses here is most interesting. It's kludonidzomai. Say that. Kludonidzomai. Greek words are just fun to pronounce. In that word or within that word is the word for wave. It's the Greek word kludon. More specifically, it has the idea of a dashing or a surging wave. We've all been to the ocean on a day when the red flags are out. They say, don't get in the water on that day. And we all look out from our condo, our hotel, and we see those ambitious ones out there swimming amongst amongst the surf, the wind, and the waves. We all know what a, what a, what a, tumultuous, crashing, surging wave looks like. That's the picture that Paul has in his mind here when he writes that immature Christians are tossed to and fro by the waves. Kludonidzimai, it has the idea of being sea-tossed or dizzied or disturbed or thrown into a confusion. Uh, Have you ever lifted the lid on the washing machine while it's mid-cycle and watched what it does to our clothes? Back and forth. It agitates. That's how it cleans. That's the picture here, though, in a negative sense of those who are spiritually immature. They're tossed back and forth, back and forth, dizzied, dizzied by all sorts of false doctrine. 
thrown into confusion. Metaphorically, the word here means to be agitated mentally like the waves in a stormy sea. It describes one who is who is who has an unstable opinion, who fluctuates or, or vacillates frequently in what he or she believes, depending on the latest fad of teaching. You see, spiritually, spiritual children, they're easily confused, just like physical children are easily confused. So are spiritual children, easily confused in their thinking and easily influenced by poor doctrine. Paul writes that they're tossed to and fro by the waves. But then he goes on and he says, not only are they tossed to and fro by the waves, look at your Bible, he says, but they're carried about or carried around by every wind of doctrine. Paul uses another fascinating Greek word here. It's the Greek word peripheo. It's a compound word, peri meaning around, a little preposition there, means around, and pharo means to carry, literally to carry around. It's translated probably carried about in your Bible carried about or carried around by every wind of doctrine. It literally means to carry from one place to the other, to carry here and there. It's used to describe the spinning of tops. Raise your hand if you had a top as a child. Yeah. You had that picture in your mind, the the, the dizzying effect, just the spinning around and around and around of a top. Such is the confusing effect of false doctrine. Paul's words here picture a person whirled about by a violent swinging that makes them dizzy. You can picture a small dinghy, because Paul is using a, a, a nautical metaphor here when he writes, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine. This is a nautical metaphor. So you can picture a small dinghy caught in a raging storm, un, unable to hold a steady course and to return safely to the harbor. Well, what is the harbor, you ask? Well, if you've got your Bible there in front of you, probably flip back a page to Ephesians chapter 1. Here's the harbor. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Paul says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What is the safe harbor It's the gospel of your salvation. It's the word of truth. But that small dinghy caught in a raging storm, that immature Christian is unable to hold a steady course. They're blown about by every wind of doctrine like that top, just dizzied around and around and around and around, not knowing how to point homeward. And into the safe harbor of the gospel of our salvation. Doctrine, Paul writes here that We're blown around or we're tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Doctrine simply, again, just means teaching. But it carries with it the idea, when you see that word doctrine there, it carries with it the idea of shaping one's thinking by word of mouth. And that's what teaching is by simple definition, is it not? It's the shaping of one's thinking by word of mouth. It's what teaching is. It's what doctrine means. You see, the waves and the wind are metaphors that speak of false doctrine, false teaching. And it's highly significant that when Paul talks about the spiritual maturity of the church, when Paul talks and he writes about the spiritual maturity of the church, doctrinal discernment and stability are on the top of his list. 
I want you to think about that in light of our current age. Sound doctrine is not popular. Sound doctrine is not loved and cherished by the majority of American churches across all denominational lines. Sound doctrine, sound theology is not held in high regard. Matter of fact, I would venture to say that doctrine is probably closer to the bottom of most lists among Christians in our day. American Christians aren't overly concerned with doctrine. Friends, be concerned about doctrine. Be concerned about the teaching of the word. Be concerned with what enters your ears by way of preaching. Be concerned with what you read. If you have no filter, and I'll I'll press forward that our our filter is the Word of God. If you don't have a strong filter, then anything will penetrate. Grow, Grow in developing a strong filter that you will be able to discern what is doctrinal error when you hear it and when you read it. I've said this before, and I'll say it again, and I'll probably say it many times in the future Just because you walk into a Christian bookstore and it says a million copies sold. Just because it's a New York Times bestseller does not mean that it is profitable for your spiritual growth. As a matter of fact, if it's sold one million copies, put it down. Put it down. Because the the book's that have a high regard and an appreciation for sound doctrine and theology aren't selling millions of copies. Because we don't want that. Because it's those books that bring us toe-to-toe with the revealed word of God. And when we are toe-to-toe with the revealed word of God, what it does is it reflects our sinful nature back to us. And we don't really like that. Read books that step on your toes. Read books that get all up in your grill theologically. Those are the kind of books you want to read. Those are the kind of pastors you want to listen to. If it's not like pulling a Band-Aid off, you don't want it. That was not in my notes. And I digress. Every wind of doctrine pictures teachings like fashion fads and suggest a childish caprice in taking interest in the latest spiritual fad. The winds, the winds that Paul speaks about here, they're they're like the winds coming off the sea. They're always blowing, sometimes more gently, sometimes with devastating force, but they're always blowing through the body of Christ. Are you able to discern them? Are you able to discern the winds of doctrine that is not sound? They're always blowing, sometimes more devastating than others, but always blowing through the body of Christ. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 8 and 9. He says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, doctrine, there. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, 
not by foods, and he uses foods metaphorically here, not by teachings, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Friends, don't be led astray by strange teachings. Now, when you, when you think about this admonishment, this encouragement, this exhortation, not to be spiritual children, not to be tossed to and fro by the waves, not to be carried about by every wind and wave of doctrine, you can see God's wisdom in giving the gift of evangelists, pastors, and teachers to the church. What, what a grace that God would give shepherds. I am so thankful for our elders. I'm so thankful for our pastors and their commitment to shepherd the flock, to, to have their antenna up, so to speak, to, to have their nose up in the air, to be, to be able to discern, sniffing out, is, is there false doctrine here? Is there false teaching? And if so, our responsibility is to guard the flock. Our responsibility is to protect the flock and to feed her what will nourish her, not what will further malnourish her. The writer of Hebrews says, don't be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. Boy, there is a lot of that out there. Matter of fact, I would tell you that there is probably more diverse and strange teachings in any given Christian, quote, bookstore, than there is that which is solid and profitable. I don't have a problem with Christian bookstores. I'm thankful for Christian bookstores. Just be careful, is what I'm saying. Just because it carries the label Christian does not mean that it's biblical. These waves and winds of false teaching, they're powerful currents of worldly philosophy that Satan brings onto the scene to undermine biblical truth. Friends, the, the one thing that Satan would love to do more than anything is to undermine truth. He masquerades, and his hosts masquerade as servants of righteousness. But what he is out to do is to undermine truth. More than attacking, and we we talk about Satan attacking, and and, and that's great, and he does that. We need to remember that that he's not omnipotent, and he's not omnipresent, and that he's on a leash, just like a dog, under the control and the sovereignty of our God who sits on the throne of heaven, but he would love to undermine biblical truth. Do you know where he would love to undermine biblical truth? Right between your ears. Right between our ears. That we would begin to believe that which is false. That we would deviate from the purity of the revealed word of God. Paul's picture of being tossed about by waves, carried about by the winds of doctrine, it may very well be rooted in his own memories of being shipwrecked at sea. You know, without a rudder, without sails, a ship on the, ocean, on the open ocean will be tossed around by forces far more powerful than sailors can overcome. Friends, do you know how to avoid being pulled into error? Think about that for a moment. How do you avoid being pulled into error? you keep a firm grasp on the truth. That's how you avoid being pulled into error, is that your grip on the truth is white-knuckled. Well, behind this dangerous and misleading teaching by which immature believers are tossed to and fro are deceitful people who seek to manipulate them by trickery 
You see, this false teaching is easily swallowed by the undiscerning, and it's promoted by the, what Paul tells us, the cunning of men. The children aren't only unstable. Think about a natural child. They're not only unstable, but they're also easily deceived. And so we can be spiritually. We can fall prey very easily to the artful and the designing of cunning teachers. Look back at your Bible in verse 14. Paul speaks about that. He says that we're tossed to and fro by the waves, that we're carried about by every wind of doctrine. And then he says it's by the cunning of false teachers. The word translated cunning there, it's the word kubia. It comes from the Greek word kubos, which is where we get our English word cube. More specifically, dice. What Paul's got in mind here is he's writing this. The idea of cunning comes from our English word dice. Carries the idea of dice playing and it figuratively refers to an intentional fraud or a trickery or a sleight of hand in the spiritual sense. Paul knew that dice were oftentimes loaded or manipulated by professional gamblers to their own advantage. In his many travels, Paul had probably watched many ragtag sailors use loaded dice to fleece unassuming, unsuspecting victims. They enticed them by greed, and then they used those loaded dice to take away their money in what looked like an honest game of chance. That's the picture that Paul has in mind here when he speaks about human cunning. Serves as a perfect picture of men who come into a congregation and they manipulate the sheep by manipulating the word of God to make it say what they want it to say. That's what false teachers do. They take the word of God and they twist it. They take the word of God and they manipulate it. That's what the first false teacher did. Did he not? Did God really say, you shall not eat of it? He twisted the word of God. He manipulated the word of God. Paul most definitely has false teachers in the crosshairs here, but I think he may very well be referring to the evil one himself. Writing to the Corinthian church, Paul said this. He employs the exact same word, cunning, as a matter of fact, with reference, with reference to the serpent deceiving Eve. First, or Second Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes this. He said, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. That's a pastoral shepherd's heart right there. I feel a divine jealousy for you. Young believers, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, but I am afraid that the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning has also deceived you in your thoughts and led you astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Then he goes on and he says, if someone proclaims another Jesus other than the one that we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted it, you put up with it readily enough. Spiritual children put up with it because they don't know any different. So we're told to grow up, to mature manhood, that we will be able to discern what is true and what is false. Spurgeon once warned, he said this, Beware, error often rides to its deadly work on the back of truth. Error oftentimes rides on the back of truth. 
Paul goes on and he talks about this craftiness. By the cunning of men, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, he says. The word translated craftiness here. It's actually a compound word from pas, which means all, and ergon, which means work or labor. It literally means willing to do anything. All work is the original word there. Willing to do anything. The New Testament, in the New Testament, it takes on a negative meaning, and it, con- it conveys or confers the idea of trickery that involves cunning or cleverness or craftiness or treachery. Craftiness conveys the idea of clever manipulation that's made to look like truth. Someone who's crafty is willing to do anything to achieve their goals. In other words, they're willing to stop at nothing. Oftentimes, this is motivated by a financial gain. It's oftentimes motivated by profit in false teachers. Like the word cunning, the word crafty here, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, that word crafty is also used to describe Satan deceiving Eve. Remember Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty, more crafty. It's the Hebrew word arum. It means subtle. Remember falsehood. Error oftentimes rides to its work on the back of truth. Subtle. Subtlety. It's a twisting or manipulation of the truth. Such is that of false teachers. False teachers who promote false doctrine are willing to do anything to lead the unstable away. And when selfish gain is your goal, you'll do whatever it takes. Even leading others astray means that you get what you want. Your best life now, that sells a lot, but it's not biblical. But people eat that stuff up. Why? Why? Well, some people eat that stuff up because they're not genuinely converted, and so they know no difference. But some young Christians eat that stuff up because they don't know the genuine article. They haven't held the real thing, and so they're easily deceived. The word translated deceitful there, it's the Greek word plane. The the root idea here is a wandering or a going astray. So craftiness here, willing to do anything, deceitful, leading others to wonder or to go astray. means to, to cause another to wander off the path by holding a false view. The word schemes there. It's the Greek word methodia. You hear an English word in there? Method. Schemes. It's where we, the Greek word there is where we get our English word method. Deceitful schemes picture a deliberately planned, subtle, and systematized error. So are the teachings of most false teachers. Systematized. There's a method to the madness, and that's to take advantage of. They have no desire to shepherd, no desire to guard, no desire to protect the flock, but rather to take advantage of the flock. It's systematized. It's methodical. Matter of fact, the word scheming originally had the idea of tracking someone as a wild animal tracks its prey. And that's exactly how false teachers work. They oftentimes go after the unsuspecting. They go after the, the immature young believers exp- explaining or claiming rather to explain the Bible in a new way. And all that junk is garbled up. 
Let me say a few things about false teachers here. The Bible, especially the New Testament, is replete with warnings about false teachers, and therefore it is replete with exhortations to hold fast to the revealed word or the revealed truth of God at all costs. Again, how, how do you guard against error? Well, you have a real firm grip on the truth. Okay? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. His explanation of the last days in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus emphasized the danger of false Christs and false prophets who would lead many astray. And he goes on and he says, don't believe them. Don't believe them. Over and over again, the Apostle Paul warned of false prophets who are disguised even as angels of light and servants of righteousness. He warned the Galatians that if anyone preaches to you a distorted gospel, a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. He warned the Colossians saying, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty, here's the word again, deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirit's of the world, not according to Christ. He warned the Thessalonians that in the end times, there would be a major apostasy that would deceive many. In his final three letters, two to Timothy and one to Titus, there are frequent exhortations to preach sound doctrine along with many, many warnings about those who have turned to false doctrines. And in his final meeting, in Paul's final meeting with the Ephesian elders, he warned them saying, I know, guys, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock from among you. They will arise speaking twisted things. Twisted things. And draw away many disciples after them. Unfortunately, just as many families today are dominated by their children, so are many churches. It's tragic when the church's children, that is spiritually immature believers, who change their views with every wind of doctrine, are found sitting among the church's most influential leaders again here, I want to communicate to you, church, how thankful I am for our elders, how thankful I am for our pastors, who by God's grace are men who are rooted and grounded in biblical doctrine. They're mature and stable. Having said that, I would say, pray for us. Pray for your elders. Pray for your pastors. Think about this. Not every liberal church started that way. Not every liberal church started that way. There are theologically, doctrinally conservative, biblical churches that have gone astray. And become liberal. Pray that we would teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's Titus 2.1. You want something to pray for your, for your leaders, for your pastors and your elders? Pray Titus 2.1. That we would teach what accords with sound doctrine. Pray that God would keep us laser-focused on his word. You know, if you let a camel's nose into the tent theologically, it won't be long before the whole camel's in the tent theologically. It just takes a little bit of error, subtlety, strange things. Paul told Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the pure word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's doctrine. Teaching. But the time is coming. 
People will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now you ask yourself again, why, why all this talk about doctrinal precision? Why all this talk about high theology? Because it just takes a little myth. It just takes a little theological subtlety to set the house on fire. The dangers presented in our text this morning by Paul, they serve to highlight the importance of Christ giving gifted ministers of his word to his people. And those ministers, by God's grace, and by God's grace alone, here I am teaching the word of God by God's grace. God's ministers are to equip the saints so that they might leave behind all immaturity and all instability and there grow to mature manhood. Are you growing to mature manhood? I pray you are. 